0: Let me point out a couple of things to you and do a couple of things prior to reading the scripture this morning. Number one, I hope you'll take a close look at the insert in the bulletin and notice that there will be classes taught during the Sunday school hour. Um, David Knuckles, our stewardship chair, and myself, and Mark Pass is going to help us some, and we're going to be doing the sessions on this book Enough by Adam Hamilton, which will also be our textbook, so to speak, for our stewardship campaign next month, and um Read the information here. Let me know if you're interested. I've ordered some books and they've come in and so we'll be glad to, to get you signed up. And we'll have a good time together talking about some, uh, some important topics. But before the sermon this morning, before the scripture lesson, and pardon, I know my voice, my allergies are kicking in a little bit, but I think I'll be okay. You've noticed as I have and as most everyone has, the financial numbers on the bulletin, in the back of the bulletin. And uh, they've been the cause for some concern for a few months now and certainly over these last few weeks. So let me address that just briefly, and then we'll move into our, our topic for today. I've always felt like that most games are won or lost in the fourth quarter. Not all, but most. And so we are in the fourth quarter. We're in the last quarter for this year. There is no overtime. And so I hope you'll consider some things with me. First of all, the scriptural call. I know we take scripture seriously and the scriptural call to become or to move in the direction of becoming, if we are not already there, tithers of our income, which means the first fruits, the first 10%. So many finance committee meetings, so many times we talk about how do we solve this problem. And the primary answer is before us in scripture, we step up and become tithers. People ask me often, uh, well, can we give to other things too as well as part of our tithe? And I think the honest answer to that is yes. But I also believe the church comes first. For we're reminded that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And there is no other organization on the face of the earth more important about getting God's work accomplished. So I hope we'll step up in that direction. I hope you'll talk about this as families. Talk about it in your Sunday school classes. Pray about this. We took vows. Most of us have taken vows to support this church with our prayers, presents, gifts, service, and witness. And I hope you're considering those vows as well. Now, I've heard and I understand there are some folks who have withheld their giving because of the denominational uncertainty that we face. And I know that's a reality. But I also know there's a greater reality. I'm certain about this church and the ministries it's called to. And Kelly lifted up a few of those earlier, and we're grateful for that. We're making a difference in the lives of children and young people and middle-aged folks and older adults and everybody else. We have some incredible ministries in this church and in this community and around this world. And when we fail to give because we may be upset with something that's going on at the denominational level, then we hurt this church and we hurt those ministries. And I hope you'll rethink that. And if you'd like to come talk to me about it, my door... It's almost always open. Just please stop by. I'm certain about that, that. This church, I've fallen in love with this church over these last two and a half years. And I know many of you have a deep love for this church. And when we don't give because of reasons like that, it's like we've turned our back on the church in some ways. Joan Didion, and I found this quote. I don't know who she is, but it spoke to me this week. She said, you have to pick the places that you do not walk away from. And I hope this will always be one of those places that you don't walk away from with your presence, your prayers, your your gifts, your service. Mickey and I earlier this year completed our pledge, and I don't mean this to sound braggy. I just want you to know that I've got some skin in this game, too. We completed our pledge for the year, and we'll take another look at that in December and do all we can from our perspective to help this church finish the year strong. I know that God has blessed us abundantly, and there's no reason for us to be where we are, and there are plenty of ways for us to move out of this predicament to gain the high ground to pick up our momentum once again. Think about it, talk about it, and pray about it. And thank you for listening to the sermon before the sermon. And uh, thank you for all that you are already doing. I'm grateful for all of you. Our scripture lesson this morning is from 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Billy Graham used to speak about, in the New Testament, Big John and the three Little Johns. This is the first of the Little Johns. Later in the New Testament, near the end, 1 John 4. 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way God sent his only Son in the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, But that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the father has sent his son as the savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world. There's no fear in love but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love we love because he first loved us those who say i love god and hate their brothers or sisters are liars for those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love god whom they have not seen the commandment we have from him is this those who love god must love their brothers and sisters also This is the word of God for the people of God. Last week, we talked about and introduced briefly, not completely, our new vision statement. We desire to be a church empowered and united by the Holy Spirit that authentically, last week we talked about welcomes all, and this week we're going to talk about loves all. We desire to be a church who welcome all, a church who loves all. And our vision helps us accomplish our mission to make disciples. It points us in the right direction. It keeps us on track. We desire to be that church. And by the grace of God, we are and we are becoming that church and we will be that church in a fuller sense in these days to come. This morning, I want to use a few remarks. I'm going to lean a little bit on two of my, my favorite, I call them my literary partners. I really don't have any right to be in the same company with these folks. But one of them, his membership is still in the church militant, the church on earth, Frederick Buechner, and one whose membership is in the church triumphant, C.S. Lewis. And I mention him often, and there's a reason for that. He's had a great influence on me, his writing staff. So let me begin with Lewis. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung, if not broken. In a series, and I think about that, if you, the only way to get through this life without broken hearts is not to love anybody or anything, That just does not seem like a very good option to me. And, uh, I would not recommend that to you either. But in a series titled The Four Loves, Lewis speaks of the Greek words for love and the English translation. Number one is storge or affection as a mother has affection for her young offspring. Number two is philia or friendship, the bond between two people with common interests and goals. Number three is eros or romantic love, the feeling of being in love. And number four is agape or divine love, God's love for humanity and our love as Christian folk for one another. And then Frederick Bigner, it's almost as if he had heard C.S. Lewis in one ear and, and was writing what he heard using his own gift for words. He says the first stage is to believe that there is only one kind of love. The second stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love. And the third stage is to believe that there is one kind of love. The last stage, one kind of love. And then he, he helps make sense of all this, or he did for me. He said, the unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic filia of friends, agape, giving itself away freely, no less for the murderer than for the victim. These are all varied manifestations of a single reality. To lose yourself in another's arms or in another's company or in the suffering of all who suffer, including the ones who inflict suffering upon you, is in reality to find yourself. It's what it's all about. It's what love is. Of all the powers, he says, love is the most powerful because it alone can conquer the final and impregnable stronghold in this world, which is the human heart. It is the most powerless because it can do nothing without consent. To say that love is God is romantic idealism. To say that God is love is either the last straw or the ultimate truth. Love, not just an emotion second hand or otherwise but a verb love does things blesses all believes all things hopes all things endures all thing in the christian sense love is not primarily an emotion but it's an act of the will when jesus tells us to love our neighbors he's not just telling us to feel warm fuzzy feelings toward our neighbors or to respond to them on demand as we do maybe with a yawn or a sneeze. On the contrary, he is telling us to love our neighbors in the sense that what we say and what we do takes into consideration their well-being. Even if it means sacrificing our own well-being, even if it means sometimes just leaving them alone. So in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. In fact, liking them may stand in the way of loving them because we might become over-protectionist kind of sentimentalist instead of having an honest love, wanting what's best for someone. Love is not just an invitation, but it's a command. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also want to love one another. And then verse 21 in our scripture lesson for today, the commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Leonard Griffith said, as Christians, we are not invited to love one another. We are commanded to love one another. And only as we observe this law do we retain any valid link with the historical Christ, with the Jesus who came to show us God's mercy and to offer us God's forgiveness. Love, not just an action, but a reaction. Verse 19 of our passage puts this very, very simply and directly We love because he first loved us. Usually we are encouraged, aren't we, in our work and in our schoolwork and other ways. We are encouraged to be proactive, to take the first step, to put ourselves out there. But when it comes to this kind of love, there's no way we can be proactive. God has beat us to the punch. God is first in line. And the only way we love is God is teaching us to love is by reacting and responding to God's love, which comes first, which is prominent and prevalent always. In his book, The Taste of New Wine, Keith Miller, and some of you may remember him, he was around several years ago. He said, our churches are filled with people who look outwardly contented and at peace, but inwardly are crying out for someone to love them, just as they are confused and frustrated and often frightened and guilty and and unable to communicate even within their own families. But the other people in the church, he said, look so content, so happy, that one seldom has the courage to admit his or her own deep needs before such a self-sufficient group of people. Sometimes loving folks means getting to know them at something more than a surface level. Understanding who they are and where their hurts are and what kind of things have made them who they are. And loving one another, for those of us who follow Christ, it's not an option. It's not a choice. Love, not just an emotion, but a verb. Not just an invitation, but a command. Not just an action, but a reaction. Not just an option, but a requirement. If we are to get along with one another, if we are to model this kind of love in our homes and in our places of work and in our communities and in the church... If our hearts are to be made whole, then everything is the only acceptable answer to the question, what's love got to do with it? Apologies to Tina Turner. (laughs) Now, then I want us to back up for just a, a moment, for a few minutes, and focus on verse 18. There is no fear in love, for perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. Mature love, I think, might be a more accurate translation of the gospel here than perfect love. For most of us, when we hear the word perfect, even though it's so much a part of our Wesleyan tradition, when we hear the word perfect, we think of reaching a point where we make no mistakes. I'm not there. I don't know anybody who's there. But a mature love still makes mistakes, mistakes of the head, not the heart. Mature love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not reached that maturity in love. Hopefully we're growing in that direction. The Holy Spirit is moving us that way and shaping us that way. Verse 18 flows from verse 17, and it has to do with fear of judgment. The prospect of standing before the bar of God's judgment holds no terror for those who are growing in love. For when the love of God is properly known, it calms the mind. Those thoughts came from John Calvin, who often found themselves at odds with with John Wesley, whose thoughts were often at odds with one another, but I, I think he was right on here. And the flip side of this observation follows, since fear implies the threat of punishment, the fearful one by definition has not been perfected in love. In other words, Christians do not mature in divine love, as someone has said, under the lash, under fear, under threat of what might happen. Fear has been used for too long to try to bring folks into the kingdom of God. It has become a form of of evangelism that thankfully, I hope, is getting away from us. A kind of evangelism that some folks refer to as, pardon me if you need to, but scaring the hell out of people. And that's just not appropriate when we're talking about the mature love that we are called to. When I was a student pastor a day or two ago in Waco, Georgia, not far from here, Waco and Poseyville, two little churches. And I was visiting a guy one night who was, was in the church, and I was in his home, and, and we were talking about lots of things. And then when I got ready to leave, he said, Come by anytime you like. Just be sure that we don't ever talk about this business of receiving Christ or this business of going to church or any of that kind of stuff. He said, When I was a kid, my parents forced me to go to church. And all I ever heard were the fires of hell and eternal damnation. And I used to have nightmares. And when I was old enough, he said, I left the church. Haven't been back, and I don't want you trying to change my mind. I haven't seen him or heard from him in over four decades. I don't know what became of him. I hope and I pray that somewhere along the way, the love of God broke through all that fear and all that stuff. And that he's a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I don't know that for sure. Fear. It seldom travels alone. It's got lots of traveling companions. Lots of buds that like to hang out with fear. Things like anger and pain and resentment and bitterness. Marie Mobley. You may not recognize that name. But you may know the name of Emmett Till. The mother of Emmett Till, Marie Mobley, was asked if she harbored any bitterness toward the two white men or toward white folk generally for the brutal murder of her son in 1955. And this is what she said It certainly would be unnatural not to hate them. Yet I have to say I'm unnatural. The Lord gave me shield. And I like that expression. The Lord protect me. The Lord gave me shield. I don't know how to describe myself. I did not wish them dead. I did not wish them in jail. If I had to, I could take their four, four little children. They had two children each. And I could raise those children as if they were my own. And I could have loved them. I believe the Lord meant what he said. And I try to live according to the way I've been taught. Talk about a mature love acting as an exorcist and casting out that demon of fear and bitterness. Clinton Black wrote, The church's love is progressively shaped by Christ and distilled of all corrupting naivete, bitterness, and cynicism. Is this happens, he said, we may finally come to realize we don't interpret first John. First John interprets us. Some of you are familiar with William Sloan Coffin, or at least you've heard the name. He has a hymn in our hymn, he wrote the lyrics to God of Grace and God of Glory, one of our favorite hymns here, I think a great, great hymn. He was pastor of the Interdenominational Riverside Church in New York City back in the 1980s. He was interviewed in the summer of 2004 by a guy named Bob Abernethy, and he died in April of 2006. And I want to share just a few of his thoughts from that interview about perfect, mature love and how that cast out fear. He said, I understand that people want to be safe and polite and obedient and comfortable, but that's not being alive. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Now, if you back off from every little controversy in your life, he said, not only are you not fully alive, but you're boring, And I don't want to be that. I don't want you to. You don't want to be that. It's a terrible thing, he said, when we settle for so much less. He said, the bedrock of my faith, mind you, I didn't get to it easily, that we are loved by God just as we are. But God loves us too much to leave us that way. And that's what gives us value. We don't achieve value. We don't have to have value to be loved by God. We are valuable because God loves us. Our value as human beings is not an achievement. It's a gift. We don't have to prove ourselves. All that is taken care of. What we have to do is to express in return God's love with our own. What a world of difference between proving yourself and expressing yourself. And then just a little side note before I end this, he had a son who was 24 years old and who was killed in a car accident in 1983. It was a rainy night, and he drove his car into Boston Harbor. He said, after my son died, I preached a sermon, and the part that many people appreciated was when I said, there is no comfort in thinking that it was the will of God that Alex died. My comfort lies in feeling that of all the hearts to break, God's was the first. The love of God, he said, is to me absolutely overwhelming. It was an awful tragedy and you have to go into the depths of pain and grief and experience sometimes what feels like the absence of God. It's always in the depths of hell, he said, that heaven is found and affirmed and praised. I just as soon live a little bit longer, he said, but when you're 80, you can't complain. To quote FDR, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. Fear of death is what is insidious. And once the fear is behind you, then it's only the physical death that's ahead of you. It's death that brings us to life. But he said we need to learn to be scared to life and not scared to death. Basically, he said, when I said, I don't think much about death, I was really thinking, I don't think much about what comes next. Because I believe our lives run from God and are in God and run to God. And that's enough. We might want to know more. And demanding that I know more about the afterlife, he said, is somehow demeaning to my faith. One world at a time, I think. and then my thoughts for just a moment, wrapping up. Casting out fear, fear of judgment, fear of death, fear of folks who are different from us. Casting out fear and all of its lousy friends. How do we go about it? Do we sneak up behind it and bust it over the head with a tire tool and drag it by its feet out the door? seems to me the best way to be rid of fear is to crowd it out. There is no fear in love, but perfect, mature love casts out fear. We're called to be a church who loves all. And if there are those whom we cannot love, what is it that we're afraid of? Amen.